There's always people out there who have done a lot more than us and given a lot more, especially those who, who come back without an arm or without a leg or without a hand. But I think no matter what you give in life, there's always someone that you can say they've given a lot more. I just appreciate the time I've had. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state of the art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, WarDocs has you covered. I'm your host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon, and I'm joined by Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist. Colonel David Doman is an adult reconstructive orthopedic surgeon with three combat deployment. In this episode, he discusses his Marine Corps career before medical school and how he transitioned to a career in medicine. We discuss his training in orthopedic surgery at BAMC during a high influx period of combat wounded soldiers, followed by two deployments supporting special operations units, and a third to the Baghdad Roll 3 Field Hospital providing support to those who were in his Roll 2 shoes. In this interview, you will hear about his subspecialization in orthopedic surgery, his perspective on maintaining surgical skills, and his upcoming transition to private civilian medical practice. You can learn more about Dr. Doman at wardocspodcast.com. On this episode of War Docs, we are pleased to have with us orthopedic surgeon, Colonel David Doman. Dave, thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here. Thanks, Wayne. Dr. Doman, you started off your military career in the Marine Corps. Why did you join military originally? And tell us a little bit about your pre-medical career. I'm one of 10 kids, and my dad was a Marine. He was actually a a Vietnam-era Marine, lost his leg in Vietnam as an infantry platoon commander, and actually sustained some soft tissue injuries to his other leg as well. That all happened before I was born. Growing up in the family, we had most of our needs taken care of. I, I figured out pretty early in the process that it would not be easy for my parents to help me with college. So I decided early on that I would uh, decide to go in the military to help pay for school. My dad was in the Marine Corps. He always talked about being in the Marine Corps and you know, right ways to do things. There's the wrong way and there's the Marine Corps way. And I ended up applying for an RTC scholarship in the Marine Corps, and that's how I paid for my undergraduate in engineering. I went to Villanova. I was an engineer major there, and then did Villanova uh, Marine Corps ROTC on the side. I guess my time in the Marine Corps, at that point in time, I had no interest in medicine at all. I was not even thinking about that. I had a degree in civil engineering. I went into combat engineering. I found out in the process that it's not the same thing. Civil engineers like to build bridges. Combat engineers like to blow them up. So I spent four years in the Marine Corps, mostly out at Camp Lejeune in North Carolina with the uh, 2nd Marine uh, Division out there and ended up deploying with the uh, Marine Expeditionary Unit to the Mediterranean Sea, floated around the uh, Mediterranean, did some exercises with different foreign countries. And that time I was a platoon commander and then spent my last year in the Marine Corps as a facilities guy, basically be in charge of the base facilities for the division. So that was my Marine Corps experience. You have this time period where you're in the Marine Corps, and you must have thought at some point, I want to do something outside the Marine Corps. What made you decide to want to have a career in medicine and go to medical school? As I mentioned, I didn't have any intention of going into medicine when I was in school, in college originally. I had actually intended to go back into engineering, get out of the Marine Corps, and and move on with my life, just do my four years, pay off my obligation, and uh, just enjoy my military experience and move on. But I, I just I guess it was just like a natural decision point where I felt that I thought about going back to school to get a master's in engineering and then realized, yeah, I could do anything. I don't have to be an engineer. And in the process of just growing up and getting a little older, I realized that maybe being an engineer really wasn't the best fit for my personality and my skill set. So I just took a chance just to say, I'm just going to look at this decision you know, all over again. At that point, I was married and we had our first child, but just did a lot of soul searching and decided, you know, I think I might want to go into medicine and, and be a surgeon in particular. I just was really enamored by the idea of being a surgeon. I started looking into it, experimenting, volunteered at the ER, 
became an EMT and in, in the end, uh, after a year of figuring things out, decided to go to a pre-med program and start the medical school process. So did you go to medical school on a military scholarship or did you pay for it yourself? I did the HPSP scholarship program. I did the one-year pre-med uh, requirement, which I funded myself. Moved back with my mom and dad with my wife and kids, my, my wife and child. And uh, after that one year, I was able to get admittance to medical school and then also pick up an Army scholarship at the time. I, I could have done Navy or Army or Air Force, but I decided the Army was the best fit for me for a lot of reasons. You completed medical school and then you trained in orthopedic surgery. What made you choose orthopedic surgery over general surgery, another type of surgeon? I, I really never considered anything other than surgery, but as far as orthopedics, as I research different fields, I, there's a lot of about orthopedics just appealed to me. A lot of it's just like the clarity of diagnosis and, and just the concreteness of it. I don't think I'm really a refined thinker and I just enjoy having simple decisions like this bone is broke, I have to fix it, things like that. But I think at that time when I first thought of it, I, I didn't really have a good understanding of orthopedics, but I took that as my, my baseline and went to medical school with an open mind. Uh, but uh, after seeing all the fields in, in medicine, I just really felt orthopedics was the best fit for me. And I think it was a good decision in the end. I think one of the interesting things about your career is that you trained at Brook Army Medical Center in your orthopedic surgery residency from 2006 to 2011. And this was right at the time period where there was a peak of combat casualties coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, a large number of which and a large percentage of which are orthopedic in nature. BAMC was extremely busy during this time, particularly as the patients would go to the Center for the Intrepid across the street. What was it like for you being a resident caring for all these war-wounded soldiers? Well, I really appreciate the training I got at BAMC. It was really a trial by fire in many ways. Uh, I ended up there because I looked at the programs uh, out there like Walter Reed and Tripler, I, I rotated there and some other places, but I felt like BAMC having, of course, the only uh, level one trauma center in the military, the ability to see civilian trauma as well as the wartime trauma, I thought was just an invaluable training opportunity. I had really had no intention of going into a trauma specialty within orthopedics, but I felt like that's the hardest thing to learn on the fly. And I really wanted to be comfortable with it as possible as part of my training. I, I think a lot of people with their military experience had just amazing experiences while deployed. Uh, a lot of my memory of my military experience comes from my time there at BAMC, not seeing the stuff coming in acutely as much because these guys had already been stabilized and shipped back from overseas, but just really appreciating the the great cost of not only to those who, who died, but those who were wounded. And there's a lot of stats coming out of these conflicts about how many lives were saved, but really had the opportunity just to see the, the catastrophic effects of injuries that so many young men and women sustained in this conflict and also just watching them rise above it. I mean, we saw people who had significant burns all over their bodies, uh, but not just see them initially, but see them in all phases of recovery. Two years after they were discharged from the hospital, coming back for, for follow-on care, guys with multiple limb amputations, uh, a lot of above-knee amputations and hip disarticulations. I think later in my residency, I saw a lot of upper extremity amputations as the conflict shifted more to Afghanistan. We saw I saw a lot of like severe open calcaneus fractures, which watching people go through that recovery was really amazing. There's a lot of amazing work done in the limb salvage realm. I, I think uh, we experienced a problem where a lot of soldiers incentivized towards amputations in the way some of the reimbursements were set up and just being able to help try to change that and encourage soldiers to give a chance to have a, a limb salvage procedure done and see what the reconstructive capabilities were and medicine were just really incredible opportunity. And I, I think for me, just seeing the patients over the spectrum over the course of my five years there, going from coming in the door with these acute injuries to the recovery process and being at the Center for the Intrepid, I actually was there when they 
broke ground for the Center for the Intrepid and when they opened the doors and then got to provide some care there as well. It was a really uh, good experience. You got a chance to see a lot of very critically injured patients who were there with their families. And a lot of times these folks required long-term care. Were there any particular memories of families or patients that you developed a relationship with over the time that you were training at BAMC? There's a lot. The one that comes to mind probably the most is we had this young Marine actually who his injury when he came, it didn't seem that severe, but he had a lot of soft tissue injuries to the posterior aspect of his thighs and his buttocks and required a couple of debridements. I remember this particularly because eventually he developed a severe aggressive fungal infection in the skin and soft tissues of his injuries. And it got to the point where he had to be intubated and the team came to the decision that we had to offer, we had to proceed with emergent bilateral hip disarticulations for this soldier because for this Marine because of his injuries. And I was the one who had to consent the family and tell him we need to do this and we need to do it now to save his life. I ended up doing it with a couple of colleagues of mine, very traumatic process. Patient was able to get through it. A couple of days later, he was able to wake up and recover enough where actually Dr. Ficky and I had a conversation with him. He woke up to his predicament of having both of his legs amputated. And just obviously that was a really difficult thing for him to go through and just be able to talk through him that and try and get other amputees in the room to encourage him to uh, not give up hope and, and to continue to strive through this. But in the end, the mucor returned, the infection returned in his abdomen and he lost consciousness and actually succumbed to his wounds. But that whole process of going through that, talking to his family, talking to him, it just really left a lasting impression on me just how, despite all the uh, best efforts, it was difficult to deal with some of these situations and just dealing with a family. Another experience that was very memorable, a little bit of a better ending, I think, was not a military member, it was a civilian trauma. We would get motor vehicle accidents, and this young, I think, 18-year-old girl hit a tree and uh, came in the ER with bilateral open knee disarticulations. She basically came in, and you could see both the bones of her knees protruding out from her skin. Really traumatic. I remember uh, seeing her in the emergency room and evaluating her, and everybody had told her mother that she was going to lose her legs. Uh, she, was, of course, was intubated, and her mother came in. I remember talking to her mother. It was like 2 in the morning, and I had seen her in the ERs. This was my chief resident year, and I saw that despite her injuries, she still had good pulses in her legs, and I remember feeling very confident telling the mother, we're not going to take her legs off tonight. I think we can save her legs, but hopefully if she avoids infection, she can keep her legs, but it's going to be a long road. I just remember that experience of talking to her mom about that and just how relieved she was to hear that. And just also how confident I felt in my training to be able to, you know, talk to the mom about that and, and give her some hope. Ended up, this young girl was in our hospital for several months. I think I was involved in four or five surgeries in her case, but she had a lot more than that. And eventually was able to return to walking and came back to visit us several times, walking on her two legs that we were able to save. Just a really uh, great experience where we as a orthopedic department got to use some of those uh, skills that we learned and apply it to the civilian world and really change this girl's life. So that was a great experience. During your training, most likely all of your staff deployed during that time. What kind of things were they bringing back from the war zone that were new to the training or something that was innovative that changed the way that orthopedic care was provided? There was a lot of stuff going on, whether my memory serves me well or not in this regard. There was a lot of lessons learned that there was a lot of prepping us for our deployments because we all knew that we were going to go once we uh, finished our residency program. So it's a five-year program and all these guys are going there, coming back and, and giving us their war stories, no pun intended, about their experiences. A lot of it was just hearing their experiences, make sure you're prepared to do this, make sure you're prepared to do this, and just following those things away. I think there was a big focus on the tourniquet, the uh, importance of the use of the tourniquet on the battlefield. We weren't so much changing practice stateside because of that, but it had a, a 
front row seat to some of those advances in military medicine, seeing them grow and change over time. I think the whole Factor 7 controversy came out during that time as far as seeing that it was not an effective uh, process. I almost didn't appreciate all those advances during that time frame because I was just learning orthopedics as I went. But in retrospect, I think I see it a lot better. You then completed your residency and your first job was at Fort Campbell, Kentucky at Blanchfield Army Hospital. Tell us about your job, what it was like to be a new orthopedic surgeon in this military treatment facility and the deployments you had while you were stationed there. Uh, I think that my experience at Fort Campbell was very different than my experience at Bamsey. I think I got a heavy dose of orthopedic trauma in San Antonio, but then at Fort Campbell in Kentucky, we were at a large military base where the 101st Airborne Division was was, uh, based out of. So a lot of young soldiers who most of their treatment needs were not wartime related. They're mostly sports injuries. Very heavy sports medicine focus there in my practice. Probably about seven orthopedic surgeons there other than myself. I spent a lot of time working with my partners there, learning together. Every year we'd get one or two new surgeons coming out of residency. And over time, as I was there longer and longer, got to take more uh, of an active role in leadership and, and helping these young surgeons going through the first couple paces of their career as they learned what they were capable of and what they were not capable of. Just really a great experience. It was a great first duty station for a young surgeon. And a lot of my work there was uh, knee and shoulder arthroscopy, a lot of ACL reconstructions, a shoulder dislocation, bank heart repairs, uh, some light trauma, some hand surgery, but a real good spattering of different things in orthopedics. I deployed twice out of Fort Campbell. I ended up staying there for a long time. Eight years is, I think, pretty long in Army life to be one place. Deployed twice, both to Afghanistan and both with the Roll 2 forward surgical teams. Tell us a little bit about that experience on what's now known as the FRST, but those surgical teams that really is a pretty small team of general surgeon, orthopedic surgeon, anesthesia provider, some nurses and techs, but the team is pretty small. How was that? It was a great experience. My Our first FST, I think we were the first FST attached to special forces. We were, I say attached, we were completely owned by them for that deployment. We helped stand up, I think what was called a ghost team, this concept where you get an even smaller unit available to push forward on the battlefield to get the operative capability closer to the soldiers in combat. We had a full FST there and we were at a pretty remote location. We just really had a small fob with probably only one ODA or one like 10 man group of special forces guys. Our FST, which was about 20 people and a couple contractors, in the middle of nowhere, Afghanistan, surrounded by a bunch of barriers and out there ready to see whatever came in. We didn't have a really high volume of trauma. At that point, the, the war had slowed down enough where I think I may have only done maybe 20 cases at deployment. But so it was a nice smattering of all really Afghans who were, who were injured, being able to take care of them and provide definitive care in some cases, but often train, sending them out to Bagram for definitive. Any particular cases stand out? My second deployment was also with an FST. This was a split FST, so a smaller group, about 10 people. And we were actually at a CIA base in Afghanistan. And the, the, the one case there that I think I just spoke with, with Wayne about a couple of days ago was it was an Afghan fighter who was shot in the arm, just this isolated injury to his uh, humerus, a fractured his humerus, uh, also took out his brachial artery. So myself and the general surgeon got to X-fix the humerus, but also shunt the, the artery and restore blood flow to, to the arm. And that's not something that's it's all that exotic, but it was the only real shunt I'd done in my career. What was really neat about it was that the patient was an Afghan. He was sent up to Bagram for his definitive care. And the guy there was one of my junior residents from Bamsey. So we got to talk about the case and he sent me the x-rays, but the patient eventually recovered and came back to our site because he was an Afghan fighter stationed where we were. I got to see him back three months later with his uh, fully restored arm. He really had all function. His nerve, thankfully, wasn't injured. 
we were able to get good follow-up there. And that was just a neat experience to talk to him and have that closure on the case. There's a lot of controversy about the size and composition of the Roll 2 surgical units. And I'd like just to get your opinion. Some people say an orthopedic surgeon maybe is not needed on that Roll 2 FST or FRST. And some folks say smaller is better. Some people say 20 people is better. What do you think? I think that it all depends on the volume of cases you're seeing. I think that if you're busy and there's a lot of stuff going on, it's nice to have an orthopedic surgeon there to be able to make quick decisions on these orthopedic issues, which may be harder for a general surgeon to, or an orthopedic PA. I know it's also been described to step in there, but I think if it's a lower volume and there's more surgeons needed for a quieter battlefield, which has been the case here in Iraq, where we are now the last couple of years, I think you could easily make the argument that less is better and those resources could be used elsewhere. I think you could do it either way, but I think many people who would like to see less deployments, especially with less um, volume of cases, would rather be operative, operatively busy somewhere else. So you completed an orthopedic surgery fellowship and training at Indiana University, and you did that in adult reconstruction. Describe to us what adult reconstruction means and how this is beneficial to the military. Adult reconstruction is essentially hip and knee replacements. If I spent a lot of time with trauma at my time at BAMC and then a lot of time with sports medicine, in my time at San Fort Campbell, my first love has always really been a hip and knee re- replacement. The Army, of course, has a vested interest in being able to train new orthopedic surgeons, new residents. And to me, civilian requirements for the ACGME, which is the Civilian Accreditation Agency for Residency Programs, you have to be able to train orthopedic surgeons in the full gamut of orthopedic care, which includes hip and knee replacements. There's obviously not much of a combat role for that surgery, but it is something that I was trained on as part of my time in San Antonio, but didn't get much of an opportunity at Fort Campbell, just based on our patient volume to do those kind of, as you guys know, but maybe not all the listeners know, the army treatment population is not only the soldiers and their families, but also retirees who spend a career in the army or the Navy or Marine Corps and then retire and then have maintained benefits at the uh, military healthcare facilities. Most of my patients within the adult reconstruction world are patients over 50 who are retirees and have hip and knee arthritis, maybe related to their service in the, in the military and that are candidates for hip and knee replacements. I went and did a fellowship in that after eight years at Fort Campbell for a lot of reasons. Most people do a fellowship shortly after their residency, but in the Army, it's a little easier to space those based on the practice model. I was able at that point in time to leave. I knew that if I went and did a fellowship, it would trigger a move. I delayed it till my daughter was out of high school and then did that fellowship in Indiana, then knowing that I would be sent to an Army training program to help train new residents in that particular field. That's how that came about. You and I have been deployed to Baghdad together, and in this role, you served as the chief medical officer of the Roll 3 Hospital here in Baghdad and for Operation Inherent Resolve. This is the only Roll 3 hospital that's in the theater. Tell us about that position and what you have found to be some of the challenges that you've encountered while we've been here. The position really has been focused on providing services not here in Baghdad where we are, but rather trying to help support the medical assets that are out remote from our location, but these small outstations where they have an FST, a role two out there, and they might need support. Basically, I'm supporting the place I used to be when I was my prior to deployments and supporting the role two from the position of the role three. So in particular, different, I think, with this conflict is previously Patients would get injured out in the field. They'd go to a role one, maybe come to a role two, get stabilized, and then come to the role three. If they were Americans, they would move forward to go back home. 
If they were local nationals, they might come to the role three and get definitive care there versus being sent to a local facility, in this case, an Iraqi. However, in this situation we're in, because we're in Iraq and there's some troops in Syria, sometimes those injured, especially if they're uh, local nationals, they, they can't actually evacuate to us. They have to stay where they are. We're trying to help these role twos, but we can't just receive the patients. We're actually trying to help provide them support and help get the patients to the right place after we've stabilized them. And where the best place to go for that patient is and to provide the right support to these units. As the chief medical officer for a combat support hospital, how much interaction do you have with the command surgeons that are in theater or with units that are in theater, such as the CENTCOM command surgeon, division surgeons, core surgeons? How much do you interact with them to go over the medical plan for the entire theater? I work under the the task force commander locally. I'm advising him on a lot of these issues. When I interact with with the medical assets at different outstations, I'm really focused on the medical piece. But then in the operational standpoint, I'm usually just advising the commander here. I'll be uh, sitting on a lot of meetings, VTCs with these operational commanders, but my role is primarily advising our task force commander locally to try to help him understand the medical piece of whatever decision is trying to be made. As you and I have discussed at length, you're retiring at the end of this year. And as you begin your transition, what were some of the issues you learned that may be valuable to other physicians as they begin their transition from the military to clinical private practice? I think a couple of things. I think as you get closer to retirement or closer to leading the military, it's important to remember that just to have confidence in your training, I think that the military really does a good job in the training we receive. And I think our additional perspective as military surgeons does add a lot to our resume that you may not realize is valuable. Also, I think that as you get closer to getting out, I think taking advantage of opportunities that are out there that are maybe not available as a civilian surgeon. In particular, I've taken a lot of opportunities to just to take time off of my job to you know train myself, whether it be through funded travel, but oftentimes not funded. I'll just take permissive TDY to go do some individual training, an area I need to, to work on, whether it be a course or, or not. It's really hard to do that. I think when you leave your practice, In the civilian world, you're often leaving money on the table, but in the military world, we have that ability to do that. But as far as actually transitioning, I think there's a lot of people who talk about this topic way more eloquently than I could. But one thing that always stuck in my mind is people say, when you look for a new job, you have to consider really three main things is the location, the pay, and then the practice setup. And you probably have a hard time getting all three of what you want. But if you can get two out of three, that isn't too bad. I was able recently to sign a contract with a job that uh, didn't have necessarily everything I want. One thing I really was really hoping for was a primary hip and knee replacement focus. But I think that uh, I had to give on that to get the location I wanted. And uh, I think that any job you find is going to be imperfect in some ways. You're going to find some problem with it. Fortunately or unfortunately in the military, we've had a good experience dealing with less than ideal working conditions sometimes, but I think that making the right decision and um, realize that there's no perfect solution out there for you is an important perspective to keep. You recently signed a contract. You spent now over 20 years in the military. What have you found to be one of the most insightful things that you've used to sign that contract? And what were some unexpected aspects you had as you negotiated your first civilian contract? Well, as I've gotten older, I feel like I'm much more willing to outsource tasks that I'm not good at. So two things I did was I, I did use a recruiter, which uh, I found somebody who focused on orthopedics only, which was really valuable. Uh, I actually ended up not using her services to find the job I, that, I, that I ended up with, which was neither good nor bad, but it, it just goes to show that just getting the recruiter doesn't tie you into anything. It just gives you someone else to help work the issue for you, which I thought was very valuable. I had a recruiter, which I, I know really helped me run interference between my wife and I. She was just having a third party to bounce ideas off of. 
was really helpful for my wife and I both to be able to ask independent questions. And then also I ended up using a medical contract review company, a company that focuses on contract review just for medical contracts, which I I would recommend versus just getting a a lawyer to review your contract. There's at least two, but probably more companies out there that, that do medical contract reviews. And in my case, because I was overseas, I actually outsourced the negotiation of the contract. I, I signed with this company, paid them a, a fee that I thought was pretty reasonable, and they basically served as my negotiator for me with the company, with the hospital I was working with, which I, I in retrospect, I thought was, was really helpful. That being said, I've also learned that there's really nobody who, who cares about it as much as you do. Having the opportunity to stay involved in the process and ask a lot of questions is always a good idea. It was a good experience, very educational. Were there any surprises or twists in that process that you weren't anticipating that you had to overcome? I I, I don't know. Maybe I'm too detail-oriented, but I just kept finding things in the contract that the lawyer didn't see, but I saw. And I'd say, hey, what about this? And they'd say, oh, that's a good catch. And I thought to myself, why am I having to catch these things and not you? But these are things that are little bumps in the road, but... In general, it was really good to have someone who was knowledgeable in the legal field to ask about what to expect in this situation or what does this mean or what could I infer from this language. That was helpful. You get a chance to interact with a lot of military orthopedic residents that are still training. What would you say are the biggest challenges ahead for them when they finish training and are on active duty? And what do they have to be prepared for in the battlefield of the future? as an orthopedic surgeon? Well, I think there's two battles to fight there. The one is when they're out in practice after residency and just trying to maintain their skills. I think that as the military goes through this transition with the Defense Health Agency, trying to ensure that you are the guardian of your skills. And I always felt it was important for me to do some off-duty employment. To me, that was a badge of honor that I would take extra time, go out and find uh, work to do in the community that was needed and that expanded my skills beyond what I was doing at, say, Fort Campbell. Whereas I think in the civilian world, that's a little bit of the opposite effect. People look at the fact that you've done some locums time and look at it as a negative on your career. But I think that in the military, that is, uh, I think often, at least in my field, very vital to keep up skills. Like, for example, hip fractures. Elderly hip fractures are a very common phenomenon out in the civilian world, but in the military, we don't do a lot of them. And I think if you you know, do that in your residency and then never go back to it after 20 years in the military, you're going to be a disadvantage when you leave the military. Being able to go do some off-duty employment and do some hip fractures was a really key piece of my work. And that was something that I thought was important. And so I took on myself and not something that was part of my practice at Fort Campbell. That's outside the battlefield. As far as the battlefield of the future, I think that The trend we're seeing now where you may deploy perhaps more frequently for a shorter period of time and then do less work while you're out there, uh, that may be what we're looking at. So keeping your skills sharp, keeping your your training up to date, I think is really important. And when I say training, for me, every time I've deployed, I've gone to ATLS and I've gone to the, the military's offerings for orthopedic training, which has been called the Combat Extremity Course, and now it's called COTS. But I went out and signed up for those courses on my own both for all three of my deployments, because I felt like it was important for me to brush up on those skills. Doing things like that, where you're going to make sure that you're ready, even if you're uh, not called on very often while you're serving overseas, is really important to uh, serve your team and serve your patients when your number is called. I certainly agree with your point in regards to residents and, and the volume and tempo that exists now. They have to ensure that they show up to the theater of war ready. There's not an opportunity to get them up to speed 
of any specialty in order to do, do their job. As you transition a year from now, you'll be in private practice and out of uniform. What do you think you're going to miss the most about your life in the military? I, mean, I think that's a really easy answer. The one thing I've always appreciated in the military is just the relationship between colleagues that is very much taken for granted in the military. When I was at Fort Campbell and since being at Fort Gordon, where I am now training residents, just the ability to run ideas past your colleagues and after hours, you can always walk down the hallway and, and run a case by somebody or just share a experience to get something off your chest. I think surgery is, it's very understated that it can be a very stressful job. And sometimes the only person who's willing to listen to you that is, is any value is another surgeon who's, who's lived through that experience of having a difficult case or a bad outcome or just a diagnostic quandary. Having those guys at your fingertips uh, and being able to bounce ideas off people has been just a great experience. And many people have told me that's not the case in civilian practice. You don't have that. You have that maybe remotely with old friends, but not in the same way that it's just so easy for us in the military to reach out to people and, uh, and get support and advice and consults in that manner. I'll definitely miss that. If your future grandchildren, great-grandchildren listen to this podcast 50, 75 years from now, what would you want them to hear about your career in military medicine? Well, let me go back to what my experience was in the Marine Corps before I was in medicine. The Marines' philosophy on training their officers is first they want you to understand what it's like to be an infantry soldier, guy on the ground with a rifle who's, who's the first line of defense, and then you want to understand what it's like to be that infantry soldier and to be that infantry officer, and then step back and say, no matter what you do in the Marine Corps, your job is to support that soldier. And I think in my time in the Army, in the Army medicine, kind of a similar concept is that when I've deployed before and maybe my kids are complaining that I'm gone or my wife is thinking about how difficult it will be for me to be gone, I just always think that what we're asked to do as military doctors is it's certainly service, but it's much less than I think most of the military service men and women are asked to do. I mean, our deployments, while there's some danger involved, we're not in nearly as much danger as others. And uh, while it's a long time away, it's not nearly as long as most other people go. And I, I think that uh, no matter what my service was, I think there's always people out there who have done a lot more uh, than us and uh, have given a lot more, especially those who, who come back without an arm or without a leg or without a hand. And the little I gave, I think I've been well compensated for. So I appreciate that. But I think no matter what you give in life, there's always someone that you can say they've given a lot more. So I just appreciate the time I've had and I'm ready to move on. We've been speaking with Army Colonel Dr. David Doman on Docs. Dave, thanks again for your time and uh, your insights, and thanks for your service, and best of luck in retirement. Thanks, Doug. My pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Docs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's wardocspodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardox has you covered. Spread the word.